0: We are going to begin with President Biden's schedule. We do this every day. This is a schedule put out by his staff. We're not snooping around. And uh, the president keeps his days fairly light, as you may know if you follow us. So 930 this morning, he had a briefing. That's every day on intel and things like that. Then he made some remarks about the Colorado um, mass murder, the black eye for America. Uh, We'll get to that in a little while. Uh, Then uh, the president, uh, early this afternoon, went to Ohio um, to uh, speak at the James Cancer Hospital uh, about uh, the anniversary of Obamacare. Then he came home, and that was it. That was it. No press interaction or anything like that. Um, So it's the 11th anniversary of the signing of the Affordable Care Act, March 23, 2010. Um, You remember that uh, then Vice President Biden said to the president, this is a big effing deal. Remember that? (laughs) It was caught on camera. That was supposedly to be a private aside. Anyway, um, Mr. Biden is a big fan of Obamacare, um, and he went to Ohio to show that. Now, the Ohio Attorney General, not many people know this, but we do is suing President Obama and the administration over the COVID Relief Act. So in the COVID Relief Act, they have money earmarked for the states. And in Ohio's case, I think it's $315 million, $350 million uh, going to Ohio. But if Ohio takes the federal money, Ohio cannot cut taxes and put that federal money in the budget. So that's the rule, the string attached to the federal money. And the attorney general of Ohio says, you can't do that. You can't tell the state governments what it can do tax-wise. So they're suing them. And that'll never be reported. They may win. Ohio may win. Um, But I thought that was an interesting aside. So we also know that the Biden administration is getting ready to roll out at least three trillion in new spending. So in my math, I do two trillion on COVID relief, three trillion on new spending, infrastructure spending. It's $5 trillion of new spending. Government doesn't have the money, it owes about 30 trillion. Doesn't have, can't even come close to funding COVID or this new spending bill. So before I tell you why, the Democrats are doing this. I'm going to tell you what some of the stuff is in the bill. So it focuses on investments in clean energy. So the federal government would make the investments, not the private sector. And then it has uh, a goal of one million affordable and energy efficient housing units. in this three trillion. Uh, that means it's going to build housing for Americans who don't have a lot of money. And then it has 5G telecommunications, rural broadband, whatever it may be. Universal pre-K, free community college, expanded child care payments from the government, paid family leave, child tax credits, healthcare subsidies, free and reduced tuition at historically black colleges and universities, but not whites. So this is what the $3 trillion go to. So what this is is the usual, all right? Democratic party giving, money directly to favored groups. That's equity. And this is the $3 trillion. But everybody pays for this. All taxpayers pay. Now, as I said, the government doesn't have the money. It's not going to get the money through the current system of taxation. That's to raise taxes. And this justifies it. So American people... We're going to give you everything free coming down the road, and that's going to include health care, housing, food, uh, everything. Minding your kids, paying for your kids' college education, all going to be free, all right? But anybody who makes a good living is going to have to pay 50 60% of their income in order to make that affordable. This is socialism, all right? So I don't know if Joe Biden even understands what this is. But this is the goal, to turn the federal government into the economic engine. The federal government will tell all the corporations, like mine, how much we can have. Now, that means that when they take more money from my corporation, I can't hire as many people, right? And that'll be, of course, big time in the big corporations. Mine are little. Then the incentive for me to work, you know, at my point in life, if you're going to take 60% of every dollar I earn, which combine New York State and Feds, I don't know how much longer I'm going to give you 60%. This is going to drive the economy down. So socialism is the goal, but what would really happen... If all this stuff is passed, then it may not be. Republicans aren't going to vote for this. Can they block it? Maybe. But what's going to happen is if, if this is passed, the economy is going to collapse. Does Joe Biden know that? I don't think so. I, I mean, with all due respect to the office of the presidency, I don't think Joe Biden knows much about anything at this point in his life. Could be wrong. All right. Now. There are two people pulling Mr. Biden's strings. You need to get to know them. The first one is Susan Rice. You know her, the former ambassador who is the Benghazi star and told the world, hey, this wasn't a planned terror attack on the U.S. ambassador in Libya. Uh, This was uh, ignited by a video. It turned out to be not true. Ms. Rice never apologized. She was uh, the point person for President Obama on these matters. She's a foreign affairs expert, expert. Well, now she's a top domestic advisor for Joe Biden. Okay. She's buddies with Michelle and Barack Obama. Very close. Now, in the four years she was out of government, somehow, Susan Rice increased her wealth, personal worth, okay, um, four times. So she's now worth according to her own filing that happened on Saturday. Did you hear about it? No, you didn't. And you won't hear about it except here, which is why you're watching and listening. So Susan Rice says she's worth between 36 and $149 million. Whoa, this is a public servant. She didn't inherit the money. where did she get it? Well, under Donald Trump, She made a fortune in the stock market. Okay? So she's increased her personal worth four times under Donald Trump. But here's the kicker. She has stocks in all kinds of big companies like Johnson & Johnson, Apple, Microsoft. She plays the market. But she also has $5 million in holdings in the Canadian natural gas company Enbridge. Natural Gas Company, Canada, is that the Green New Deal? Oh, no, it isn't. That's a fossil fuel company, Enbridge. Now, $5 million worth. So the Wall Street Journal was the only news outlet I saw that even mentioned this Susan Rice, Ron Klain um, personal finance release. They didn't mention the Wall Street Journal, the Enbridge thing. They knew it. They knew it, didn't put it in the article. The article is tiny. So you tell me, now the Wall Street Journal editorial page is an honest page. Their hard news coverage? No. But at least they ran the article. The others didn't. So Susan Rice made a bloody fortune under Donald Trump's economy by investing in a Canadian energy company called Enbridge. Ron Klain is the chief of staff for Joe Biden. He was chief of staff when Mr. Biden was vice president. So he uh, made a lot of money under the Trump economy, too. He got paid $2 million a year. $2 million a year for working for a company called Revolution. Now, Mr. Klein is worth about $12 million, all right, overall. So he made $2 million a year out of government working for Revolution. What's Revolution? Well, it invests in high growth consumer companies, tech companies, health companies, and real estate and hospitality. It's a capitalism thing. They are basically funding companies, buying equity in companies they feel are going to make a lot of money. And Ron Klein made $2 million a year. That's $8 million under Trump when employment was full. And Ron Klein had a good job. Now, these are the people that are driving the socialist stuff, Rice and Klein, because they have theirs already. They got it. 146 million, Susan Rice? Oh. Thought you'd like to know. Let's go to Colorado. So, 10 people dead. Another mass shooting. Embarrassing the United States all over the world. Suspect is 21 year old Ahmed Al Alisa, Syrian national. Okay? Muslim. Uh, no real reason why he would go into a grocery store and shoot 10 people dead, including a police officer, Eric Talley, 51 years old, had seven children. So immediately, uh, Joe Biden, um, went out and said, uh, no more assault weapons and ammo clips and, you know, we need gun control. That's what always happens. Um, will anything happen in Congress? It'll be a brawl that's for sure. Now, I told you yesterday with the Atlanta thing that disturbed people and they are disturbed don't really need an excuse to go out and kill other people. They are sick. they do it. They can get guns in this country, but all the gun control stuff is not going to really stop that with 300 million guns already in circulation. All right? Just black market guns will cost more. Everything is expensive these days, you know that. The government is printing trillions of dollars in consumer prices higher than ever. If the government continues its printing and spending, the dollar could continue its free fall. Two six All right, let's go to racism. So, I wrote a column called um, Creating Racism. It's on BillO'Reilly.com. It's get a lot of, lot of buzz. And I'm going to read you a few paragraphs of the column. And then I asked to get a very smart guy, an African American guy who's an ex vet, you know, not somebody with a race hustling background. I wanted to get a reaction. And I think it'll be a good discussion that's coming up in a minute. First, let me quote from the column. According to documents obtained by journalist AP Dillon, teachers in North Carolina are being instructed that white cultural values include denial, fear, blame, control, punishment, and one dimensional thinking. Of course, any group could have elements that embrace those things. But for the wake North Carolina schools, it's exclusively a white problem. In one teaching session, the argument was made that whiteness perpetuates the American system of injustice. Therefore, teachers should challenge the dominant ideology of whiteness and actually disrupt white culture in the classroom. This incredibly racist point of view is not just on display among the woke in Wake County, North Carolina. It has taken root all over the country. The race hustlers who peddle this pernicious propaganda also advise teachers to disrupt any parent might object to having his or her child brainwashed. You can't let parents deter you from the work. City Journal quotes an instructor. This is where the, the original reporting started in City Journal. White children are benefiting from the system. This is simply horrible. Young children being taught skin color dictates their lives. Talk about creating division and bitterness. So that's part of my column. And let's bring in now Rob Smith. He is a senior contributor to Turning Point USA. He's the author of the book, Always a Soldier. Okay, Rob, you were kind enough to read the column. Uh, Give me your impressions of it.
1: Well, I thought it was dead on. And when I was reading the article, what really struck me is how these, uh, these teachers that are supposed to be teaching children first don't really seem to be very interested in that. And so I I pulled a few statistics about what's actually going on with the education system nowadays. Now, this is according to the National Assessment of Educational Progress. uh, And this is from this past October. Just 37 percent of 12th graders um, are basically math and reading proficient enough uh, to be prepared for the college courses. And your, uh, your article talked about North Carolina. In North Carolina, just 14% of eighth graders in public schools were proficient in reading. This is also from the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Um, So what's going on right here is we have a lot of activist teachers um, that are bringing critical race theory claptrap into the schools and they're not doing their jobs, which is to educate these children first. And as somebody that went to a public school, as somebody that is a fierce advocate for school choice, it makes me feel very concerned for the direction that this is all going in, because not only are these kids not being educated, they're also being indoctrinated into critical race theory and into um, hating white people, into thinking that racism is the biggest issue that they're going to face in society. And I really fear that this is going to have a detrimental effect on how these kids can operate in the world, you know, post, uh, post high school.
0: Well, it already has. Um, You know, as a former high school teacher, I know you have to motivate children to learn. They're not going to just come in and go, oh, I want to know all about history and geography and civics and uh, accounting. Uh, They don't do that. You have to motivate them to learn. So now what these woke teachers are doing is giving children an excuse to fail. Oh, it's rigged Mm -hmm. against me. The white people have everything. I'm not white, so therefore I can't succeed no matter what I do. It's a built-in failure. It's a victimization. So the public school system in America is basically creating uh, a victim class um, that when they don't do well, for whatever reason, they're, oh, no, 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 it's not my fault. I didn't study or turn in my homework. It's because the white people are oppressing me. And that is a real danger.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Bill. And you know what? Uh, It's really good that you brought that up, because when you even look at what's going on in in the New York City public school system, now there's all this conversation about, well, just fundamentally math, that math is racist. Um, There's uh, all this conversation about tweaking the standards for certain standardized tests because African-American students are are scoring lower. So that must be because, you know, learning is now racist and, and all of this stuff has something to do with racism. Um, I, I think that it just is, like I said, it's very detrimental. It's not helping these African American kids, and what we like to call it is this is the soft bigotry of low expectations. And I have to point out the fact that these are mostly white liberals that are doing this, right? So, so these are not evil uh, conservatives. But or there's no like pushback. Um,
0: there's not much pushback from the African American community. See, that's where I say you have to start. So if the African-American community would rise up against this phony public school point of view and say, no, we want the basic academics taught on a level to everybody, this would stop. It's the same thing in Chicago. If the people in the poor neighborhoods where hundreds and thousands of people are being shot would go out and demonstrate like they did after the shooting in many If they would do that, Mm -hmm. then maybe something would happen. Now, I have a personal question for you. How did you avoid when you were a kid being put into that victim category?
1: Well, I mean, honestly, to tell you the truth, you know, I, I went to failing public schools as well. It, it, it was a different era, you know, when I, when I was growing up. I had good teachers that, that motivated me. But also, like I said, I, I think that the biggest motivator in my life um, was the discipline that I got from being in the military. You know, like I said, I talk about it uh, in, in always a soldier right there. And I think that that is the key. And I think that for a lot of these kids, um, you're absolutely right that there are more parents that need to be involved and there are more people that need to be speaking up. But you have to understand also that in these failing public school systems, and I always think back to New York City because that's where I lived for 12 years. And you know you see these kids on the subways, you see these kids on the streets every single day after school. These, these uh, schools are operating as little more than glorified babysitters for these kids who aren't really learning much. And the only thing that is the difference between the kids who are not learning and the kids who are learning and don't go through life with that mentality is at least one active involved parent, preferably two. Um, and I think that in, when I look back to my life, uh, I grew up in a single parent household, but my mother was very it was actively involved in my life. She always pushed forward that education is important. And I think that that's another element. Uh, that, that we're not really seeing here. Sure, with a lot Parental, of these parents getting involved. Uh, the parents
0: have more to do with education than any teacher will ever have. Yeah. <clears throat> Final question for you, Rob. Um, there is a tremendous amount of bitterness within the African American community, generally speaking, toward the American system. Now, I don't know what the percentage is, but I see the polling and I hear people like LeBron James and the professional athletes that so many children look up to, bad mouth in their country all day long, kneeling, not respecting uh, the structure and the traditions of America. That's reality. So the combination of poor teaching, creating a victim mentality among students who need to be motivated, not told they're victims, And what Mm -hmm. these kids see um, among the athletes and movie stars and things like that, the rappers. um, It's almost overwhelming for an African-American kid, is it not? You know,
1: it's very overwhelming. I think that there's a lot of sense among black people in this country right now. And, And like you said, this is aided by media propaganda, by entertainers, by celebrities, by athletes, rappers, whatever. So there's a sense that the American dream is somehow not available to African-Americans. And the hypocrisy of this is actually crazy because you would hear somebody like LeBron James pushing out this messaging, but LeBron James has become fabulously wealthy because he has a skill and a talent and he was able to do that via the American system and via capitalism. And that's the the thing and the hypocrisy that nobody seems to point out. I think that in order to let uh, black Americans, but, but, any other quote unquote marginalized Americans realize that the American dream is for them as well. We just need to start speaking up about it. There need to be more voices like mine. I think uh, more voices, particularly on our side of the aisle um, from people that don't come from the typical background, but learn that conservative values actually do work, learn that loving America actually does work and learn that the American dream and capitalism and all of that stuff really is for black people, too. We need to start getting that messaging out there a little bit more. And I think that this is, you know, this is a good, uh, yeah, good but way if, to start.
0: If you do get that message out, you're going to be canceled. You'll be attacked. You'll be branded a bigot if you are my skin color. It'd be hard to yeah. brand you a bigot. But I mean, oh, well, they, if, they I, still if do, I
1: honestly, you
0: know, I, I understand. It. But but white Americans who want. Black Americans are prosper. and I really believe that's most Caucasians. They're afraid, Rob. They're afraid. Mm-hmm. The cancel culture has devastated robust debate, honest exchange of ideas, because you're branded immediately. You know it, you see it. Of Anybody course. on television or radio speaks out, you're a bigot. I mean, I don't care what you're saying, they want to destroy you if they, being the progressive far left, imposing all this woke nonsense and harming children beyond any measure. Last word for you.
1: Well, look, you know what? Uh, I I always believe in America. I always believe in the opportunity for Americans to thrive and survive. And so I think that honestly, I mean, me, myself personally, I I like to call myself uncancelable. But we have to kind of start beating down through this cancel culture. And I really do think, honestly, and and I've been sort of kind of teased a little bit for being a little bit too optimistic about this. But I really feel like we're seeing uh, we're turning a corner on this cancel culture because now, this cancel culture that the left has created is now starting to affect them. And I think that as long as we as conservatives or we as free thinkers, independents, whatever you want to call it, as long as we continue to exchange and this, this open ideas and these open debates, I think that that will will be OK.
0: I hope so, Rob. Um, I share the hope that you have, but I think the fight is even going to get nastier. But I think the corner, at least I can see it. But I could be wrong. Rob Smith, author of Always a Soldier, I recommend you guys check that book out. I think you will like it. And Rob, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Thanks for taking the time.
1: All right. Thanks a lot, Bill.
0: Okay. So, what is the state of President Biden, policy-wise and the state of him as a man? Let's bring in David Petruya. He is a... uh, presidential historian. He's written more than three dozen books all over the place. he got LBJ book, JFK, Nixon, Harry Truman, Theodore Roosevelt. So uh, David knows his stuff on the presidents. You're a nonpartisan guy, right? Uh, I play it down
2: the middle. A lot of my readers say that, yes.
0: That's what I asked my producers to book. I didn't want anybody who loves Biden or hates him. So he's been in office two months. And now we have a border crisis and gas prices rising every day, which is, you know, inadvertently a tax on all working Americans. Maybe he did or has done some good things that I don't know about, David, but how would you assess his presidency after two months?
2: Well, obviously, I'd give him an incomplete, but it's a bad incomplete you know, the Democrats focus on the first 100 days and his first 100 days were the first 100 executive orders, not getting much, if anything, done through Congress. None of the executive orders really doing anything to improve the lot of the American people. And as you pointed out so well, the border is just not a border anymore. It It was resembling a border for four years, but not anymore. So, and, you know, he's, he's a little like the, the previous occupant of the White House. Comes in very narrowly, a very combative guy, and neither Trump nor Biden has done anything to increase their uh, majority or plurality or their popularity in, in any way, shape, or form. They, they play to their base, and that's, that's a dangerous game, when in the case of Biden, you won by, you know, in a handful of states by 43,000
0: votes. Okay, I agree with you that both uh, President Trump and President Biden play to their base. But Biden promised not to do that. Whereas Trump, That's right. all day long, you knew he was going to come in and, you know, with uh, scorched earth. But Biden said, oh, no, trust me, I'm going to bring the nation together. I mean, he said that many, many times. Did he lie?
2: Yes, I think you have to say that. And with the with the liberal, radical, progressive base now of the Democratic Party, he really is is stuck. If he wanted to move to the middle, it would be a very dangerous game for him to, to play there. And it would be a very dangerous game with the very narrow majority in the House of Representatives and the
0: non-majority in the Senate. So he's kind I don't of know how he moves eight
2: eggshells, but yeah, he's, I don't he's know not how a he moves. guy.
0: I don't think he can move center now. He's committed to no. the progressives. Um, uh, but I said there are three things going to bring him down. By bring him down, I mean that Republicans win the Senate and the House in 2022. All right. And that's coming up fast. The first is the border and we're seeing that now. I don't know how he solves that problem. I don't think he can solve the problem. It's gonna get worse. The second is the economy. So we should have a surge in the economy after COVID up until mm, October, November, but if he passes the big tax hikes on corporations and individuals, that's gonna kick in, jobs are gonna be lost, and the economy is gonna to start to wobble. And the third is this cancel culture business, which is totally out of control, And now we're getting anger. I mean, anger by uh, many, many independent Americans. They don't like this. They know what it is. It's a witch hunt and it's the progressives driving it. So those are the three things. But Joe Biden himself does not seem to me to be on his game, to use a cliche. I don't think Joe Biden knows the unintended consequences of what he's doing, because surely If he knew that there was going to be a catastrophe on the border in two months, would he still have done these crazy things like saying, well, yeah, we're going to pay for all your health care? Well, yeah, you can stay here as long as you want asking for asylum. Would he have done that if he knew this was going to happen to him?
2: I think he, like you say, he is trapped and the people below him or around him who are making the decisions are now... So ideologically driven that that they have no choice except to do these policies which have no basis in reality and which, you know, never examine the second or third or the fourth effect after what they do. So it's it's all for soundbite. It's all for the tweet. and, And in terms of the greater ramifications for the nation or even for their own party or their political future, you know, the, the brain process stops pretty quick, whether you've got dementia or not.
0: Do you think he's impaired, Joe Biden?
2: I think he's, as you say, not at the top of his game. He's getting older, he's lost many a step. And of course, Joe Biden, you know, what you're seeing now with the combativeness, when, with the gaffes, I mean, this is this is all the original Biden. So you're merely seeing an acceleration of, of the process, but whether he is impaired or controlled by someone, I think you would get the same effect in terms of policy as you're getting right now. The bigger problem is not D- Joe Biden. The long-term problem is not Joe Biden. The bigger problem is the radicalization of, of the Democratic Party and this woke culture, this cancel culture, this politically correct uh, culture, which is just putting the uh, a
0: strangulation around free speech and free thought. Absolutely. Absolutely. But Biden himself is going to have a press conference, they say, Thursday. Um, that will be interesting to see if he can parry the press. It's not going to be like a Trump press conference. They're not going to be trying to make. Uh, Biden looked bad, but they have to ask tough questions about the border. They should ask the gas prices as well. David, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Uh, Very uh, nice interview. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you very much. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith.
0: Let's bring in a guy who's smarter than me, at least he tells me that. Dr. Toby Bergovitz is a assistant professor at Boston University in my old school. Of communications. And uh, the doctor is a smart guy. And even though he leans Democrat, he's not a Kool-Aid drinker. So in my run up to set up uh, Mr. Biden's press conference tomorrow, was I unfair to him, doctor?
3: No, I think you were quite fair. And I think you, in fact, analyzed how the press tends to deal with these situations. Um, It really is home court advantage for the president. And unless the president messes up, he should be able to handle this. Um, The thing about Joe Biden is what presidents like to do is a monologue. Um, Obama was a master at that. You ask a question and he runs down the clock. If if Biden does that, Biden probably will cause himself more trouble than if the press, in fact, asked him additional questions. So I think that's a trap that Biden could fall into because
0: he'd make gaffes if he starts to do a monologue. Is that what you're implying?
3: Because he'll sort of wander away from the talking points. Uh, And what's really important for the president is to be crisp try to answer a question as best as possible, which most of the time for most presidents is avoiding answering the question. Of course, Trump did the exact opposite. Trump just went hammer and tong uh, fighting with the press. That's very different from what most presidents do.
0: Why do you think President Biden delayed having a press conference for 64 days?
3: He basically just stalled. And in fact, if I was working in the White House, that makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, you want to do no harm. And if he has a press conference, what benefit does it do for the White House? Um, It'll let the press say, yes, now the president is addressing our questions to the American people. Most of the American people This is not at the top of their list for what's most important is a presidential press conference. So the White House really just delayed having any kind of press conference. By the way, it's not just press conferences. On the rope line, he never takes any questions. He'll take maybe one, sort of do an answer, and wander away. Um, During photo opportunities at a factory floor or anywhere, he doesn't take questions. So it's really not just a press conference. It's just the strategy of the White House is to avoid having Biden answer almost anything directly.
0: But by doing that, they put more pressure on him tomorrow. So coming off the uh, stairway falling down, he's now in, and people, uh, I was on a Hannity radio program today, and Hannity was talking about the stairway situation, and he asked me to put it in perspective. And number one, I said, and I said on this program as well, nobody should be happy that Joe Biden fell down on the stairway. I mean, that's that's not a good thing. If you're happy about it, you might want to reevaluate that. But in my opinion, as an American citizen, he's in decline. Joe Biden's in decline physically and mentally from what I've seen in 64 days. I could be wrong, but that's my assessment. If tomorrow he doesn't come off, as you put it, crisp and able to parry, then that's going to be on steroids that he's in decline, is it not?
3: Yes, there is a lot of pressure on Joe Biden to do well, to show that he is in command of the facts, that he can articulate his point of view. And when reading a teleprompter in small bits, he usually can do okay. What he will do is try to show empathy and compassion. That's really been his MO uh, during any of his speeches. But if asked a specific challenging question, that he needs to answer yes, no, back up with facts, that could be problematic. Yeah, he's not
0: gonna do that. He's gonna blame Trump for everything, I, I think. I don't think he'll get away with that, with the American people, because that'll be the, if he does that, that'll be the headline. I mean, all the news organizations will take that and they'll say, look at this and all of that. Do you expect him to blame Trump for everything?
3: He probably will blame Trump for the mess on the southern border um, that has been the strategy. And he doesn't want to take responsibility for the situation that we're in now. So, yes, he'll do that. Um, you know, by the way, we haven't really spoken at all about covid, um, about the vaccination rollout. Um, I don't know about you, Bill, but I'm mighty darn excited that I can have a hot dog in my backyard. on Yeah, the I am, July too. But I know that the press going well, the
0: press isn't going to go there very much, because it's fairly well-defined, all right, what's happening now. There's not a lot of controversy. People are getting vaxxed. People, uh, as you just said, are looking forward to being uh, normal again. I don't know the press is going to do that. And it's a tee-up. You give uh, you give Biden a COVID, he's just going to run all day. Whoa, we did this, we did that, we did that, blah, 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 You know, it's not like, well, Anthony Fauci is saying stuff that isn't true. They're not going to do that to Biden. So I expect it's going to be border and then it's going to be guns. And that's a tee up to Biden, too. But here's my my last question for you. And again, we really appreciate your time. I know how busy you are, doctor. So my assessment of the White House Press Corps is they wanted to hurt Donald Trump. That was what 80 percent of them were in business to do. Wasn't about. Getting information or giving the president a fair say. It was make them look stupid. And I know as a fact that those people were ordered to do that by certain news organizations. Do you concur with my analysis?
3: Yeah, this is a really slippery slope for the White House press corps. On the one hand, they can't look like their dogs, which most of the time they are, but none of them want to be the one who is the one who started bringing down the Joe Biden White House. Uh, so they sort of have to ask a somewhat challenging question, but none of them want to ask the question that is going to be a mess, that's going to cause a big problem. Uh, that just isn't in their wheelhouse either.
0: Yeah, but you, you agree with me they wanted to hurt Trump? Generally speaking.
3: Oh, absolutely. Okay.
0: Um, and oh, that,
3: not generally that
0: generally, that's, that's the big difference. Um, Peter Doocy of Fox news, he will try to hurt Biden. Let's be honest. He's going to try to hurt him, but I don't know if Doocy's even going to get a question. Um, because the Biden people know that he's going to try to hurt, um, the president. Uh, Always nice to talk to you. Give my best to everybody at COM. They still remember me up there in Boston, you? Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) I don't know if that's a good thing. All right, Professor, thanks. Well. (laughs) Thanks very much for helping us. Great seeing you, Okay. All right, last week, here's the final thought of the day. I mentioned that the urchins and my urchins think I'm the strictest parent in my Long Island neighborhood. Well, a lot of people saw and heard that. And now there's controversy because all the kids are saying, no, Mr. O'Reilly isn't as strict as this other lady is. She's stricter than Mr. O'Reilly. So it's like a big thing back and forth here. So I know the other lady and I know her urchins and all those urchins turned out really well. So if she's stricter than me, good for her. I don't think I'm that strict a parent. All right. I'm not demanding anything other than The urchins be responsible. We have one rule. We have have rules like, got to clean up your room. You got to keep your person neat. uh, You got to go to church. You know, we have that, but nothing onerous, just regular rules. But the one thing that I absolutely have imposed is the O'Reilly philosophy. If you say you're going to do it, you do it even if it's a little thing, even if it's, well, I'll text you. You text. That's our philosophy. If you say you're going to do it, you do it. Now, strict, That's strict, I'm just trying to lay a pathway to success. And I believe parents have to have rules in order for success to happen
1: on the urchin front. We'll see you tomorrow.